Hello and welcome to the next episode of Sim Talk, a member of the Broken Jars Broadcasting Network. And with us today, we have none other than Dr. Ricky Ingalls, a titan of industry and also my father. So, Dr. Ingalls, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, so you've been you've been in the game for how long have you been doing simulation now? Well, I graduated with my master's uh, from A&M in 1984. So um, professionally, I've been doing simulation along with other things, um, you know, since that time. So there's been a mix of simulation and optimization, planning and a lot of other things. Okay, well, that's a good segue. So why don't you run us through your education where and some of your work history and some of the things you've done so the audience can, uh, if they don't already know you, uh, can get a deal for sure. who you are. Yeah. Um, well, I uh, graduated uh, from East Texas Baptist College with a degree in math in 1982. Uh, went to A&M, started in the math program, and then found the real applied math and industrial engineering, and then transferred to that department and graduated in 84. Uh, went to work for Motorola for a very short amount of time because I wasn't using uh, my skills, and it bothered me to no end. Then I went to work for GE, uh, a consulting group inside of GE that consulted both inside and outside uh, the company in the electronics industry. Uh, it was there three years. Uh, then I went to Compaq uh, Computer Corporation in Houston in the early days. Um, uh, was there for four years, so that brings us up to 92. In 92, um, in that time frame, I couldn't shake this desire to get a doctorate, so I cut a deal with Semitech in Austin where I could have flex time to take classes and started my PhD work at the University of Texas. While um, having four kids. While having four kids. Well, the fourth one came uh, while we were in Austin, and, and the fifth one came before I graduated. So uh, the... Um, so I started my PhD work at Texas, uh, was at Semitech for three years when I finished my last class at UT on a Monday. Um, on Tuesday morning, I was back at Compact. They had held a job for two years in a corporate level group, strategy group. Um, and so I went to work for them and um, worked there for five years. Um, at the age of 38, I made the executive pay ranks at Compact, reporting to the VP of Global Logistics, um, uh, and I finished my doctorate in 99 uh, at UT in management science. Again, that's one of those things. I started in engineering, but uh, Doug Morris was over in the business school, and that's who I wanted to work with, so I went, changed departments and went to the business school. So in uh, 2000, um, went to Oklahoma State University where I was an associate professor there in the IE department for 15 years. Started consulting about a year after I got there. Um, so I did independent consulting. Uh, then I formed uh, my own LLC in uh, 2007. And then Diamond Head Associates was started in 2009. Uh, Randy Gibson and myself started Diamond Head Associates in 2009. Um, so, the academic side, I took the job as the chair of the computer information systems and quantitative methods department at Texas State University in the business school um, in 2015. I was there two years, decided that a uh, couple things. One was um, I really, I wanted to give uh, consulting full-time 
and Diamond Head full-time uh, a shot. I finally sat down and said, yeah, I could make a living at it. And uh, so I left Texas State. And I left academics uh, last summer uh, on June 1st, and I've been full-time with Diamond Head ever since. So that's kind of where I've been. It's been a big mix of a lot of things through the years. So uh, I'm happy to be down to one job. That's <laughs> really. Yeah. So when, uh, you know, we, especially with Diamond Head, you, you see a lot of uh, the industry uh, right now. So what do you, what are your thoughts of simulation right now? Where are you seeing it applied? You know, th- those kind of, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on in the industry from where you see it? Uh, well, you know, we, uh, let me back up a little bit about Diamond Head. Diamond Head, uh, is a consulting firm primarily in simulation, but we do optimization work as well and other type of work. But, um, uh, and we have close ties to the, uh, auto mod group at Applied Materials and with the Simio guys in uh, Swickley, PA. Uh, I, my primary simulation tool is Simio, and so I work with the guys in Swickley quite a bit. And we uh, attended the Simio users group meeting last week, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And um, so saw a lot of industry presentations, uh, some things that were interesting about that, and I think it is a trend is um, it more and more of the simulation is moving into operational decision out of design decision. The design is not going away, but the operational decision making, you saw more presentations of that uh, and people wanting to do that than I would have normally expected. So that's something I thought had, you know, if you go back to, I think I did a future simulation thing at the winter simulation conference probably 15 years ago and i always thought the future simulation was embedding itself in bigger applications where it was decision making and i'm beginning to see that come to to pass so i to me that's pretty exciting because i think that's where it explodes uh, as far as its application but it's hidden you know people won't know it's there it's just another decision making tool right so since you do a lot of optimization with simulation, uh, could you talk about the differences between the two and maybe how they work together? I know when I see it, uh, at least where I work, is you get a lot of, it's either optimization or simulation, but do you see any chances for those to be merged together as, an optim- uh, as another tool? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's opportunity. I mean, from a... Uh, yeah, you always have to take into account speed. Matter of fact, we had this discussion with a, a client of ours, um, Valero in San Antonio, uh, just last week, because they've uh, started using Simio, and Simio has the capability to use OpQuest, which is uh, an optimizer add-on, but it's stochastic optimization, and um, uh, and it's you can't do a large number of variables, and it's not going to run very fast on a very large problem. So we had to explain to them uh, the difference between what one of their groups is doing with optimization and how Simio or simulation could use that information. And so basically it goes like this. Optimization is great for uh, decision-making where variance is not an issue. So if you, if you have, if variance is an issue, 
in the decision. Optimization will never capture that. Well, never. There's stochastic optimization without simulation underneath, but it suffers from a lot of the same issues as uh, simulation optimization. So, um, but for large scale planning, large scale, you know, especially like supply chain planning, uh, simulation may never do that. Um, and you probably don't want it to because it's what's it spitting out a monthly plan, a weekly plan. It's not enough in the details to, in general, to worry about options, uh, to worry about variance. Where I see the two merging are when we can control the number of decision variables or, um, uh, control the experiment where it, you know, if the simulation model takes uh, a minute to run, you have a chance at, at doing a simulation optimization that works. If it takes an hour to run, it's never going to finish. So, I mean, there, all those things play in and it all has to do with performance. Uh, and so I, I, I do believe that there's a place for that um, in possibly scheduling, uh, but it does have some criteria where, the implementation would be successful or not be successful, primarily at speed. Okay. Uh, actually, since you've been, you know, you've been with simulation for a long time, uh, how have you seen, like, how has it changed through the course of your 30 plus years in it? So, like, what did you start modeling with and where are you now in terms of, like, hardware? Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> when I went to AM, well, first, uh, again, I need to back up a little bit more. When I was a math major at East Texas Baptist, I swore I would never program a computer. Uh, I thought that was an absolute waste of time, and this was around 1980. And then I became the TA uh, for the math department, and I had to have office hours and help, you know, freshmen, sophomores with their math. And and um, uh, during that time, the the lab, the computer lab where I was sitting. They bought Apple IIe's. That's how old I am. And they came with a little tiny book on how to program in basic. I didn't have anything to do. People weren't coming in. I went through the book twice and it was over. So I learned how to computer program with that. And um, so I get to A&M and I'm in the math department and I'm looking for applied math. And, and I find out within a semester that what the math department thinks is applied math is not exactly what I'm looking for. But I got there in the summer. The math department didn't have any courses. They said, go over to this industrial engineering department. I had no clue what it was. They go over there and take this course called operations research. Cool. So I go there. I get introduced to non-square matrices uh, that actually solved to an answer, which I, I didn't think was even possible. And then um, uh a, a still a longtime friend of mine, uh, John Fowler, sat next to me in that class. He goes, you know, you really ought to take simulation. You, you need to take that course. You know, you can make the IE a minor. Uh, take simulation. So I took simulation under Bob Shannon. I learned SLAM in that very first um, uh, class under uh, Dr. Shannon. Um, and I switched departments. So uh, that's one of the main reasons I became an industrial engineer. The so I er, in the early days it was slam and then I helped debug Simon 1.0 which was the basis for eventually what eventually became Arena uh, and still the code underneath Arena so uh, Dennis Pegden when he started systems modeling I got 
the code on our mainframe and did my master's thesis on that uh, and on a PC, but uh, the code on the mainframe I could help debug. And I did a chunk of my thesis in uh, Simon. So Simon, Cinema, Arena, I went up that path. I've also used um, any logic. I used ProModel on one project back in the early 90s. Um, I've written my own, uh, you know, obviously I'm using uh, Simeo now. I've written my own at least for, on three occasions, um, two of them for industry and, uh, and my dissertation. So that's, you know, that's a, kind of my background in that. So I've done the detail stuff and I've done the broader stuff as far as using Simeo. Uh, so how, how has hardware affected the software? In- oh, yeah. Hard, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's no such thing as a simulation that runs too fast. <laughs> okay. So every uh, hardware advance is an advance for simulation, and that's affected it a lot. And so you see a whole lot more capability. And I think this is why the embedded stuff is finally getting to where it needs to be. Because embedded stuff can't be slow. It has to be fast. It's got to be one or two second type decisions, not, um, you know, minutes or certainly not hours. So I think that that's, it's huge and it will continue to be huge. And by the way, um, I gave a talk at uh, Carnegie Mellon and also with a bunch of chemical engineers at a conference uh, where we got to talk about stochastic optimization, they kind of asked me the same problem. Why don't you think stochastic optimization uh, will be, you know, usable or is usable? And I told them it's just hardware. I mean, there'll be, there'll come a time when stochastic optimization is a viable technology um, and simulation optimization will eventually become a viable technology when the hardware is there. Okay. So, you know, especially with uh, diamond head, as you go through different companies, I mean, I assume that you know Diamond Heads is is all over in terms of industries. So you're, I know when I worked there, we did energy and logistics and all that right. kind of stuff. So what are some of the things? Where across industries, what are some of the common themes you see when you're pitching, especially pitching a simulation project? Well, that's interesting. Um, it, uh, boy, again, we go kind of to the audience, right? As, mm. of, of who that might be. If they ha- if they have no discrevent simulation background, um, you have to uh, explain to them what it can do for them without getting incredibly technical. And I'll use uh, one of one of my main clients is a financial firm out of Charlotte, North Carolina, called Retirement Clearinghouse. They're in the four hundred one k industry. They're great guys, very sharp. No simulation background, but they can model right? They knew models, right? So we took that and explained what simulation could do for them. They caught on and uh, we've been working with them for three or four years now. Yeah, about three years. So it's, um, you have to kind of draw from where they're at to bring them to where they are. They're not, they're smart people, right? So they can make the analogy if you can just explain it, how to get there. Now, those who are, have IEs in the group, Usually, uh, it depends at what level you're trying to sell it, right? So if you got us, it's it's really hard to sell in an organization where you're selling to an engineer because they don't have financial approval. Their boss has to buy you, 
or their boss's boss has to buy it. And, and again, they probably don't have a engineering background or if they do, certainly not simulation. And again, you have to go through the whole thing about this is why it's valuable to you. And the value is variance, right? You, it, there's the real world is not, um, the real world is, is not constant. So uh, you, variance is what simulation will pick up in animals. So, you know, it, it's telling a story. You just got to tell a story that draws you. Okay. So what are, what are some of the common questions that you get? Like, is there, is there one question that you're pretty much expecting whenever you walk in to pitch a simulation project that no matter who you're pitching to, you're going to get this one question or a couple of questions or red flags or however you want to look at it? <clears throat> well, yeah, the, um, most of the time, most of the time, it's kind of like you explain what it can do, and they go, it can do that? Uh, yeah, it can do that. So, and then if they ask how, you know, uh, you have to explain that. And so, I, I again, I, I tend to use a story, which is simulation mimics the business rules of the business, right, over time. You know, that's something your Excel spreadsheet can't do. You can calculate a bunch of things in an Excel spreadsheet. It's more of analogous to an optimization. Mm-hmm. So an optimization is just a calculation of steroids, and it's goal seeking. So they they may have used goal seeking, and they kind of understand that. But the simulation is we're going to put in your business rules, and it will act like the business acts over time. Oh, that's how it works. Yeah. So we can put in things like breakdowns. And so uh, I, there's usually not you know a lot of times the killer questions have to do with things that aren't related to the simulator, uh, which, which are schedule and costs and things like that. And you always get those. Mm-hmm. So when you're, I mean, I know it's going to be really, really random, but uh, when, what are your sort of base ideas for time? I mean, I, mean I, I know I tell people 60, 90 days for most projects. Is that where you fit, find that <clears throat> most simulation projects fall into or? Uh, yeah, I would say two to four months. Is, is probably legit, uh, and three months is usually a, a decent target. Assuming engineers cooperate uh, with data and all that stuff. Well, yes. Well, we're assuming the, is that the data part is actually painful because it usually is. Um, and so under okay. the, if things go really well with the data, it's, it could be a couple of months if the scope is... When you say really painful, what what do you mean? Like, what what's that? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, when I was at Compact, we had tons of data, uh, and I don't know if Compact was just unusual, but the data quality was pretty good. I could trust it, so I got spoiled. And when I started consulting, I found out pretty quick that a whole lot of other businesses did not have the level of data quality. Oh no, it's terrible! It's terrible. So. If you deal with one company a lot, you begin to learn about its data quality and um, how to deal with it, right? So you come up with standard ways. So it makes the projects faster. When you're consulting, you don't have any idea up front. Uh, As a matter of fact, we have, we try to put something in every contract that basically says, if we get to the data and we find out it's absolute garbage, we can mutually agree to end the project. Um, we've been burned, well, burned, we, yeah, we've been burned on a couple projects, um, where the data was just terrible and the people we were dealing with, 
uh, weren't at a level to know that, either know it or tell us up front. Uh, and it was just incredibly painful. And on a fixed cost contract, it's very time consuming and mm-hmm. you don't make, make enough money on it. So yeah, that's a pain. And that's the number one issue on supply chain stuff, especially your manufacturing. Well, especially supply chain. And, and um, we, we budget for that now. Hmm. We'll actually lower the price of a contract if we get through the design phase, and which includes data uh, quality checks and find out they have really good data. But we will offer to lower the price on the project. Uh, that's how important it is to us. Wow. So what are like, you know, current, current state of simulation industry, uh, what are some of the, the negatives you're seeing right now in the industry or something you run into a lot that just bothers you or? <laughs> uh, something I run into a lot that just bothers me. There's not a lot. I, I guess one thing you have to understand about the simulation company is they're small companies. Uh, just it's a fact, right? They're none of them are very big. Um, and they're software company. Number one, they're software company. They build tools for you to use in the applications. So they're not applications companies. We shouldn't think of them that way. Um, if you're using their application for supply chain design, which is certainly possible, and a couple of companies have some stuff specific for that, um, you should realize that they are not supply chain experts. You know, they built some tools to help you with that. Um, I think the, well, as long as they're software companies, you have to be the domain expert. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, just the way it is. I think that the software becomes more valuable to end users when it has a domain focus. Um, You know, if you're great in material handling, uh, it's more valuable because you're great at material handling and a material handling company will value. So I think that that's um, a a big deal. Another one is uh, some stuff came up at the users group meeting and uh, I see this in general. You know, we talked about three months to do a project. Uh, there needs to probably be a whole lot more focus on bringing that down to days, uh, if possible. You know, and I, and I don't know that we, as an industry, have thought about that uh, as far as the time to create and get things out. But it's a lot of projects fail because you don't finish them fast enough. You just don't finish them fast enough. And, and the decision is gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more we can make it uh, days instead of months, uh, so, the better off everybody's going to be. Would, would the transition from months to days be more with like pre-built objects like Simio? And I know AnyLogic does a lot of InflexSim too. Or is it just, is it ease of use? Like how do you transition from 90 days to 10? I, I think a lot of it has to do with industry-specific things, right? So if you can, um, whether it's data-driven or whether it's drag and drop, I mean, data-driven may be the fastest way, but you have to have uh, code, whether it's objects or some other code, um, to interpret that data and make it happen and create the model and run it. I, I th- that can be very valuable, you know, so Simio's constructs uh, are amenable to that if 
you can build library and that's some of the users group guys have done this they've built elaborate libraries to make the building of models much faster uh that but it's very specific to their business right very specific so um you could pull that off in any logic um because of the way that software is built um uh, the others you know are, already have some industry focus but it doesn't mean they're fast to build models so, right so uh, I, I think you know time is money and and decision making is is money right if i could if i could turn around and say look i can model your supply chain in a week and come back with uh valuable information uh i can charge a whole lot more than i'm charging <laughs> that's just a fact do you would it be something where Maybe you can get valuable information in a week, but then you can say, okay, but I can also add this in a couple of months is, is would. Yeah. Would, yeah. I think yeah. I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. Um, sort of like stair-stepping a project. So you're like, okay, we can get this model done here and then we can add more here and so on and so forth. Yeah. I, I think there's some value to that. Um, you know, you buck up against with clients. Uh, if you told them, if you told them, look, I've got a distribution center modeling thing, uh, software that can model your distribution center in a week and we can, you know, get out the dynamics. They're going to turn around and say, look, my distribution center is special. It's different. Yep. And, and you, everybody thinks they're special. So, the fact is that uh, they may have some special things, but usually you can write them down as business rules of some sort. And if we could get business rules into the thing that drives the model and helps build the model, I, you know, that mm -hmm. deal with that problem. But um, yeah, so yeah, there's, I think, a best base set of pre-built code, for lack of a better term, objects uh, that you can use. Um, and then, you know, focus on being able to put that together quickly. So it's, that's coming. And I think there's a, there's a possible revolution in, in the speed of doing a project, not too far down the road. Um, and it'd be, it, that's another thing that might really change things in the next couple of years. Do you think part of that would be some kind of AI or machine learning to help identify or help build out the, that code? Or is that all on the human side of things? Ooh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, I, it certainly could possibly work, you know, um, but I haven't, haven't given that much thought. So uh, what are some things that you always try, like I, when you're doing a project and you're sort of outlining your model, what are, how do you like to do it? Is there a, a set thing, like a set routine you like to go through or is it, you just kind of take it as it comes or because I know when I'm doing a project, I like to sort of follow a certain routine when I'm building out a model. Sure. Um, well, I, I just say a, a very standard thing on diamond head projects is to build a design document so that uh, you need the design document for two reasons. One is to understand what's going on with the client and the client understands what's going on with you. So that's where a lot of education is done and you agree on the scope and the basic logic and things that are in and things that are out. So mm -hmm. that when, when the scope creep begins to happen, you can say, no, that's not in the design document. <clears throat> we weren't planning to do that. 
So mm-hmm. either expect a bigger bill or let's <laughs> renegotiate. Okay. So um, now given the design document, I, I'm a, a uh, do pieces and, and debug them kind of person. So um, I'm doing a, a optimization slash simulation where optimization feeds a simulation type project right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm doing it sort of logically. You know, you do the first optimization, there's a second optimization and then the simulation kind of understanding how they're going to talk to each other via data. And um, so my very first thing was to get all three of them running with just like hooks for things to go in the future. Right. So I, that's mm-hmm. the very first thing I did. I could do it. I did it in about, I got the base models running and hooked them into the simulation in you know, a week or two. And the simulation was just a skeleton. It had entities moving, going through production sites, being shipped to customers. Things. So, but it didn't have the details that will eventually go in. So if you get uh, the higher level structure going, and then you can get into the object or into the details and do one of the details and then check it, do a second mm-hmm. detail and then check it. So I, I tend to do it that way. So I know that my code is solid as I go instead of trying to you know write a bunch of code and start debugging. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the, especially modern packages and their object oriented focus really helped. Sure. Especially, I use, as you know, I, I build a lot of cut my own custom objects in Simio. Right. And so yep. Me too. I can just debug those and then deploy them as needed. Right. I mean, you're always going to run into just really random stuff. But, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, you will. Um, yeah, I, there's, there's always, you know, that's the thing about simulation. The 0.001% probability occurrence eventually occurs. Right. And you probably didn't plan for that. And so it can cause a problem. Um, and you got to figure out what, what's going on. And that's when it becomes um, tedious, to say the least. <laughs> but, but it's part of the deal, right? And right. so as part of beta debugging, you need one run or it's not going to cut it, right? You've got mm-hmm. to really exercise it to be sure that one of those low probability sequences, when it occurs, it doesn't. Uh, screw up the model. So I uh, there was there was one time where I had an issue in Simio where in the experiment run, it nineteen out of twenty runs would run perfect. Sure, one would break, and that yeah. that was very difficult to find. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I mean that that happens a lot actually, where you get to the experimentation or you use experimentation and you're running multiple mm-hmm. iterations, and that's when you're really exercising the model and that's when those really low probability occurrences right. go up. So if, what do you find really enjoyable about simulation and doing simulation projects? And what do you like, you know, it's just, it's part of the deal, but you really just dislike doing it. <laughs> uh, 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 writing, the, writing the documentation probably <laughs> is my least favorite thing to do, but it's incredibly necessary. Right. And, and if you, you know, if you document as you go, it's not as painful, but, um, so that's probably my, I guess if I had to pick something least favorite, I really enjoy working with the clients. I mean, it's, a you know, with my, I've always had sort of a teaching bent, uh, even when, before I went into academic and, 
I've always had this focus on being able to um, convey complex ideas in a simple way. Um, and I've always tried to do that. And it's al- that's always fun to do when you really start working with a client. And you're working with people who have master's degrees or doctorate degrees or people who finished high school. It doesn't matter you know, who you're working with. You have to be able to convey complex ideas. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is an Albert Einstein quote. And he said, you should be able to explain the laws of physics to a barmaid. And, and I agree with that, right? You should be able to explain the complex to uh, those who aren't educated uh, for it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I, I'd like to go with a golf analogy when I'm trying to explain what simulation really does. Like, look, simulation isn't throwing darts at a dartboard. It's you're 110 yards out with a pitching wedge. If you're within 20 feet, you're pretty happy. Because <laughs> people, especially um, especially where I work, is they re- since we things are tend to be very exact, you know, we, we know – this machine is supposed to do X number of packages and all this stuff. I'm like, look, we can get really close, but we can't, um, we can't be exact because right. it's not a human brain. And right. That's something I've been running into a lot and trying to explain to people. It's like once we start getting into human decision-making, that's when things get really complex and very good. Sure, yeah. But even the machine doesn't run that rate all the time. Right. Right. So mm-hmm. – you know, it, it's designed to run that rate. I completely understand that. But if you measured it, it does not run that rate all the time. Uh, it may not run that rate ever if you're precise enough with mm-hmm. the measurement. So, you know, you, if you get that across, especially to engineers who are dealing with the machine, you know, the mechanical and electrical guy, then they'll eventually, they'll go, yeah, you're right. I mean, if we sit there and measure the actual performance of the machine, it would not be doing the right exactly then you you know there's your randomness argument right mm-hmm. do, you, do you find that certain people tend to latch on uh to simulation faster because i know especially where where i work that you know the the people at the headquarters they're like whatever about it but whenever i do a project for our people in the field they love it you're like, oh, we can do this, this, and this, and you can just test it, and we can then make changes. Yeah. And they're all about it. I generally get a lot more buy-in, a lot more help from people who are, you know, in the muck, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, you gotta you gotta remember the guys at the higher levels what kind of decisions they're making. So mm-hmm. in general, they're aggregate decisions, and they don't see the variance. The variance is kind of washed away in the decisions. It, you know, if you're planning quarterly, <laughs> you know, if you, I mean, I used to do the strategic planning for all of Compact's supply chain resources. Uh, and we did a quarterly plan and an annual plan. You know, quarterly plan, we never use simulation to generate a quarterly plan on the resources. Mm-hmm. Right. That'd been overkill and, and silly. It would have never made me ever <laughs> finish running. So you got those guys are making those decisions. The reason the plant guys are all over is they see the variants all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they see variants killing their goals. And so right. they're all, that's why they're all over it. Finally, they have something that explains the problem in a model that they, they can't do an exit. So um, th- that's why, that's why. And so a lot of times you will get that, you know, mm-hmm. pe- people who, who are having to live with it, the pain of the variant. Um, will latch onto it. 
Do you ever see simulation finding the perverse incentives in a model or in a system? Because I know in some of the models I've done where we've talked about what is the optimal way to pick mm-hmm. um, would actually be counter to things people were judged by. So like some of the metrics that people were, were used for like bonuses and things like that were counterintuitive to the best way to run the facility. Do you ever, do you ever run sure. that? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's uh, you, <laughs> you know, I see it a lot more, I think in optimization where you get counterintuitive. Uh, well, you use the term perverse, perverse. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of breaks the incentives. Um, and that's because it's optimal on some criteria, usually least cost. And some of the incentives are not least cost incentives. And so the incentives don't align with the objective of the model. <clears throat> the, uh, on the simulation side, okay, now being a good industrial engineer, <clears throat> this is a true story. Being a good industrial engineer, we have all learned one thing. <clears throat> the more inventory you carry, the better you are at meeting customer demand, Right. Right. So I'm doing this model at Compaq uh, when I was in the strategic group and it's a supply chain model. And I thought my model was absolutely broken because I was getting results where the inventory uh, was going up and the the on-time delivery metrics were tanking, just tanking. And I'm sitting there going, "This there's got to be a bug. For two weeks, I'm sitting there trying to figure out what the bug is. And I finally figured it out. And it's sort of the dynamics. It's not really perverse, but it's the dynamics that the simulation will catch that other things won't catch, mm-hmm. which was there's one bad supplier. And we had modeled supplier reliability in the model. And there's a bad supplier and they can't get product to you when you want it. And, <clears throat> and so when that happens in an MRP system, the rest of the material has already been ordered and it's on the way. So what's going on? The raw material is going through the roof. Right. One part's missing. You cannot produce and you cannot ship. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I presented that model to the VP we reported to at the time. He goes, he goes, I've been trying to fit. I've seen that for years and couldn't figure that out. <laughs> so, so that, that's a, sort of the power of simulation where you see things that are counterintuitive, just don't make sense based on everything you've ever learned. But in fact, it's true. And uh, you learn something about the data. Okay, actually, uh, you talking about going to the supplier level. Uh, what? How do you determine how granular to get with your simulation? Like when you when you decide, okay, this part can be black box. We don't need to model that explicitly. Versus, we need to model every supplier. We need to model every truck in the yard. You know, where is that? Because there is sort of a intersection between those two, between sure. speed and reliability. And I know for some clients, at least of mine, that they have a hard time trusting when you black box anything versus the super explicit stuff. Sure. Well, I, I like to use uh, one of the techniques I use is extreme examples to prove a point. So if we had unlimited computing speed, what kind of models would we be building? We'd be building physics models of the actual equipment, right? Uh-huh. And that ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. So you have to abstract something on the machine. So the, the only question is at what level do you begin that? Um, and uh, nobody would argue that that model would take too long. So my general rule is you, um, if you think that, 
the experts and you agree that this part of the system will, anything you do to it and its normal operations will not affect the overall metrics significantly, then you can black box it. Um, I will tell you, I've been wrong on that. So you know, one of the models I did uh, at Compaq, I black boxed a, a section of a conveyor system and John D'Antoni, my boss, goes, you know, his instincts were different. He said, look, I just think the stuff's going on in this section are really complicated. We really need to model them. And they were complicated, but I did model them and he was right. And so, you know, you have to be able to give and take on that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's my sort of my general rule. I, I try to, usually it's decision logic, right? Decision logic you need to actually have in some detail. It's the physics and mechanical stuff that you can abstract, maybe not black box, but at least abstract because they're predictable. They're randomly predictable. (laughs) You don't need to know why the machine's breaking. You just need to know it broke. Yeah. And, and how often. Right. So so, yeah, we we need to inject random screw ups because that's real. Right. Mm -hmm. So where do you, uh, see the industry going in the future, you know, next 10 years of simulation? Well, I, I think uh, the, the two things we talked about earlier about, hang on, excuse me, rapid model building and um, embedded apps are, are going to take off. Now, the domains of those embedded apps, you know, uh, certainly scheduling, I think, is one of them. Uh, I'm, I'm big on that. So I think that uh, that's going to become a big deal. Um, I also think that, um, you know, I, I think simulation can go into new areas. Uh, one thing I found out working with Retirement Clearinghouse is that, I mean, we're talking companies like Fidelity. Fidelity mm-hmm. has one of the best quant departments in the financial services industry. They don't use simulation. I have no clue why. And, and, the, and the answer we got back was, we don't know how you're doing that, right? This model that we built for retirement clearing. But it's really cool, you know. Uh, so we, I mean, these are PhDs in, in uh, well, I, I mean, you like know, that, so. I come out of the finance world, essentially, with my right. degrees. And you would never know it existed unless right. you just ran into it. And if you're always in those kind of financial worlds, they right. don't know what simulation modeling is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, my minor at Texas was finance. And so I went through a lot of theoretical work as well. And, and uh, it, it, their, their modeling world is not stochastic. You introduce something like, uh, uh, what's it, spreadsheet, um, crystal ball. Crystal ball, finance guys love it. That's the kind of randomness they think. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact is that the financial world and every other world are processes uh, and have a process focus. And so it's more than just what crystal ball can do for you. So I, I think there's, there's possibilities of expansion into those types of industries that simulation hasn't been in. Uh, mm-hmm. I think simulation has to be focused again, sort of an industry focus on how that would work. But um, I, I think there's some big possibilities there. So something I've been seeing a lot more of is simulation in startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really want to push like, you know, open source, Python, that kind of stuff. What would you say to people who are like, oh, we want to do these large, you know, facility simulations and 
you know, Python or SymPy or something like that? Uh, we could do that, but it'll take uh, 10 times longer is probably the answer to that. <clears throat> you know, and I can speak from some experience since I have built my own simulations from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, simulation systems ground up. So it's, um, it's, it's not a trivial task. And um, again, you could do it. And, and maybe the argument with them is, yeah, we can model it at this level, right? It won't be very detailed. If you're good with that, we'll do it in Senpai. Okay. You know, <clears throat> because Senpai has the fundamentals of the calendar and mm-hmm. structures that you could actually do discrete event simulation with. That's it. So you're writing everything else from scratch and, you know, it's, it's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the number of people who can do that <laughs> is greatly diminished. So the number of workers, the number of people with the expertise to build up a model from Senpai is really small compared to those who are using these other tools. Right. Uh, so you've got a broader base of people to choose from to go to work for you. And uh, the modeling will take much longer, probably be worthless by the time you actually. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely uh, offended a few people because I was like, look, I can do it, but you don't want me to. <laughs> You're going to waste way too much of my salary doing. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> it, you, they shouldn't be offended, right? I mean, it's, it's a fact. It's the truth. Uh, and, uh, you should always tell uh, people the truth mm-hmm. and, you know, be nice about it. There's no reason to be offensive, but, um, it's, you know, it's just the fact, right? Um, probably, so, uh, yeah. I wasn't trying to be offensive, but when I worked at the Red Cross, you know, I was doing, you know, bl- blood drives and blood donation centers. I'm like, look, we're essentially a manufacturing facility where our raw materials are humans. They did not like that analogy at all. Like, look, it's just the truth. We have this raw material comes in. We, you know, and yeah, they, they're like, oh, we're doing something special. I'm like, yes, we're saving lives. By, I mean, from a practical standpoint, we're just a manufacturing facility. From a process standpoint, it's still just a process. Yeah. Uh, well, so that's yeah, that's interesting. We're uh, you know in going into the future, uh, where do you see like technology changes and those affecting simulate? Uh, if you you know if you listen to other episodes, you know I'm big on VR and how it all affects right. simulation. Yeah, yeah, and you know we've had those talks outside of uh, uh, the previous episodes as well. Um, I think it's a fascinating idea, uh, the VR idea. I think that um, nobody's really thought about it from a model building standpoint. Uh, I think the VR idea, though, kind of begs a second set of questions, which may actually come as computing power increases. Uh, Physics-based models uh, may become fast enough that we begin to use them more. Um, I know that uh, there's a couple of software packages, and I'm probably going to leave somebody out and make them mad. Um, Demo 3D, uh, Automod has a physics engine that may not be used very often, but I know they have one. Um, and I'm sure somebody else has one, but they're slow. It's a computing Mm -hmm. power problem. They're not inexact. No, they're very exact. They're very cool, but they're still too slow for a large scale model. And that may come in, really come into play, uh, in the next 10 years, uh, with computing power. 
You may know the answer to this, but why don't more simulation companies borrow from the gaming industry? Because they have very fast 3D. I mean, you can you can download Unity for free or right. um, oh, uh, Real uh, Real Engine, which is insanely powerful. I've actually been trying to figure out how to integrate that with Simio here recently. Yeah, but like. I don't, I, is it just, just a, they want to look at it from one angle so they miss something or? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you're going to use a gaming engine, your primary interface is the, uh, the game, right? It well, is well, my the thought was the they have all the physics built in, so you right. could use that. Well, you know. again, Demo 3D, I, I know this because uh, one of our principals used to do a lot of work for Demo 3D. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they have a gaming engine at the base of their software. Okay, cool. Uh, Do right, you know which so one? They, no, I don't know which one. Uh, I'll, to, I'll to look into the, that. Yeah, they, they've been out for a few years, several years, and, and they have a gaming engine as a base. Again, I, I just think, you know, in simulation, you usually, it's a time horizon problem, I think, which is, you know, you're, if you're going to simulate something, the shortest you're going to simulate it in a highly complex system is still a week, right? Right. So imagine doing that with a gaming engine where that's part of the, the deal for a week. You'd, you'd have to do it faster than real time. Uh, you know, there's probably too much animation information going on to be meaningful in a lot of ways. So, I mean, you got to, I think it's a time frame issue and a speed issue, right? How fast could you actually simulate with a physics or gaming engine? And, um, uh, and that's the shortest. I mean, I almost never rumble for a week. You know, I sometimes run a model for months or years. So, uh, I mean, the retirement clearinghouse model was 40 years. Wow time horizon so i mean you've got that would have never worked for them and been meaningless for them mm-hmm. right none of that would have made it right well in in my industry and work you know it's four to eight hours is generally how long i run them like uh, the simulation okay. time because that's how long okay. sorts are and sure oh yeah you have a natural break right, right mm-hmm. in, in the time right right uh, yeah, sure i think the longest sense. i've run any model is since i've been at fedex is like 15 days yeah okay so it's just say the the tighter the time compression the more detail you're doing Mm -hmm. than somebody who does a a model that's geared to do a year um and so and so that's when the the physics engine begins to make more sense Mm -hmm. um right so um again it's a focused application i i can't you know the the, the disconnect between simulation exploding, I really believe, is this fact that simulation companies built fairly generic, and this is fine, fairly generic simulation software right. for use. And it may have a flavor, like Automod's flavor is uh, material handling. It's really good at material handling. But, um, but at the same time, it's not industry focused so much that it's very efficient at really, really complex stuff. And, uh, and it's given a, given a time horizon. So, you know, that's just one of those dimensions that the software guys don't tend to think of over time. Um, I don't think, you know, I could be completely wrong on that. Okay. So, you know, being a former professor and, yep. uh, so say you've got a, 
a kid in school or just coming out of school? What are some pieces of advice you could give them, books to read, uh, anything like that to sort of help get them in the right mindset? for Well, uh, I've said this for 30 years, uh, pretty close, 30 years. Uh, one of the biggest, I, I had this concern in the 80s and not early 90s that simulation, very smart simulation master's degrees were coming out. And they, but they weren't in the industry five years later. And so the reason I believe is because they latch on to, they come into a, a company, maybe they're the sole simulation person, especially that's incredibly bad for them. Um, they come in and they bite off a project that's a hundred times bigger than anything they ever did in school. And it takes them a year and it doesn't finish and they don't understand the industry enough to be worthwhile. and they fail and then they have to go do something. Else. So my biggest advice to them is, is don't, don't think simulation can cure all ills. Understand where it's really useful. Use somebody with experience to help you scope a project so that you can get it done and get a good answer in a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, find a good mentor, mentor of some sort, you know, either industry person or, um, you know, it may be one of your professors who's done larger scale work so you can uh, do that. So mine, I, I think they have the fundamental book knowledge coming out, but it's the application of simulation that they uh, don't have the knowledge of. And what will ruin their career in simulation is a failure element. Mm. And, and you try to avoid that at all costs. Um, I think... Uh, again, one of the biggest things they can do is find somebody with experience to give them advice and mentor them along, mm -hmm. um, be a, a set of eyes and ears to, to help them through. And, and that will, I, I think they've got probably the requisite book not to start, right? I, I don't think that they probably need to learn any, uh, as far as the technical aspects of it. Okay, actually, sort of leads into my next question is, uh, what, if anything, are the failings of current academics in simulation? Like, if you come out with a, a master's in IE from a good school, what are some of the things that those students are still going to be lacking that maybe they could pick up on the side while they're getting their degree? Oh, on the side while they're getting their degree. Yeah, you know, that, that, that the coursework may just be sure. missing or... Well, again, you have to get back to the purpose of the coursework. Uh, the purpose of a coursework is to give uh, the student a set of fundamental tools to be able to do the work. Mm -hmm. So the best thing they can do, if they can pull it off, is an internship or a summer job where they're actually using the tool. Or to find a job on campus, maybe with some of the research, if they're, if they're masters or doctoral students, uh, with one of the research groups, on campus that it, that are doing larger scale things than they see in class. Because uh, one of the most fortunate things that happened to me was I did a master's thesis that was incredibly complicated. The engineer at the firm where I did it told me it couldn't be done. They had had professionals come through and said, they've tried to model this and can't. Uh, it was a job shop that made printing wrong. Um, uh, so, and I did it. I, I successfully did it, but it was a nasty project, but I did it and I could learn from my mistakes mm -hmm. and, and it not hurt me. And so I had my year long project, but it didn't hurt my career. Right. And, and mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, that 
to to do be able to do that um, inside the the womb of academics before you're out uh, would be is very very valuable. Cool. Uh, one last question, and we'll uh, sure. we'll start wrapping this up. So, since you're probably the only one who can answer this, what's it like having a kid in your industry, especially in something <laughs> so small? Uh, it's kind of awesome. Uh, so, I, I think the uh, uh, it was really fun when you went to your first winter simulation conference, and I asked you how it went. He goes, "You said uh, now I know what it's like to be the kid of a rock star," and <laughs> And I'm sitting there going, you know, I've never considered that, you know, I've, I've been in the industry for a long time uh, and, you know, I've always tried to do good work, uh, whether it was academic work or, or industry work. And, and uh, to be able to see you uh, come up and take hold of some of this stuff and do things that, you know, I've never thought of doing uh, is very cool. So I'm real pleased with that. It, um, but even, you know, if you think back on uh, how you got started, I mean, you got started on live projects, but you had a mentor there to make mm. sure that it went the way it was supposed to. And so that, that model helps a lot uh, when you're first getting started. I find it fascinating. And, and I'm seeing a couple more uh, work. People who have a fundamental object-oriented computer background are getting into being simulation people and they don't have the IE education and they're good. I mean, I, you know, so I think that, um, I don't know quite what to make of that, but you know, you come from that, you know, you would fall into that bucket. Um, right. There's, there's a, a couple of people at clear path that would fall into that bucket. They're very sharp, um, great modelers. Um, and, but they come from a, a complete, a non IE background or a non management science background, they're a computer program. And so it, I find that fascinating as well. So, well, uh, thank you for sp- spending part of your Saturday with us. Um, would you like to plug any websites, any where we can find you online or anything like sure. that? Sure. Uh, uh, the Di- Diamond Head website is uh, diamond head associates.com. It's very long, but worth uh, typing. Still a terrible URL. <laughs> I tried, I tried <laughs> what, almost 10 years ago to tell them not to do this, and they didn't anyway. Well, we, didn't, we, didn't, we couldn't get DHA uh, already taken, so we wanted DHA, but we just couldn't. <laughs> DHA Inc., it was taken. So there was, we tried to shorten it, but we really couldn't. Um, even Diamond Head Associates without the hyphens was taken when we first started the company. So um, anyway, so diamondheadassociates.com. Um, uh, I am a, uh, I do have a Twitter account, but I never use it to post anything, which I probably should change the way I do things. I am on LinkedIn uh, as well. So uh, Ricky, R-I-C-K-I, Ingalls, I-N-G-A-L-L-S on LinkedIn uh, as well. I, I use LinkedIn quite a bit. So um, that's where you tend to find me. And uh, we do really big, nasty models. So that's, <laughs> uh, that's our claim to fame at Diamond Head. We use experienced consultants to do really nasty problems. And uh, we love it. Well, again, thank you for coming out. Um, right. Listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode. And we'll see you next time.